0: Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You are about to hear one of our highlight conversations recorded live for our 2022 festival, which explored the role of the written word in upholding humanity's values and freedoms through our festival theme, Mamayu Hayuning Bawana, Uniting Humanity. So please settle in and let the magic of our 19th festival continue.
1: Uh, Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Andreas Harsono. I work for Human Rights Watch in Jakarta. Uh, I'm going to chair this panel uh, over the next one One hour, sorry, not one year. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let me introduce the speaker one by one. Tito Ambio. he is now a journalism lecturer at LMIT Melbourne. Yeah, Tito is a journalist, is a TV producer. He has worked in Australia, Indonesia, and East Timor, and has held editorial and leadership position at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, ABC. Uh, he has trained journalists from many parts of the world, including doing training inside Indonesia and Vietnam. Uh, Prodita Sabarini is now the publisher and CEO of The Conversation Indonesia in Jakarta. If Tito is in Melbourne, Prodita is in Jakarta. Uh, Prodita used to work for The Jakarta Post for eight years, Uh, she is a founder of Ingat 65, remember 65. It is a website dedicated on the 1965 meseika in, in Indonesia. Uh, Prodita helped set up the conversation Indonesia in 2014, six years ago, uh, which is to bridge the academic world and journalistic newsroom. It is basically a platform for academics to write a more popular uh, opinion pieces on the conversation website. Lydia Khalil is now uh, the research fellow, the research fellow on transnational challenges. Transnational challenges, uh, basically terrorism, extremism, <laughs> at the Lowly Institute in Sydney. Uh, the latest book is The Rise of the Extreme Right. Uh, Lydia has held previous appointments as an International Affairs Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and McGuire University. Before moving to Australia, Lydia served as a political advisor for the Pentagon, nothing else and as a senior police advisor to the Boston Police Department. She has also worked as a senior counterterrorism and intelligence analyst for the New York Police Department, NYPD. This morning, for one hour, we are going to talk about disinformation and misinformation. Disinformation is on purpose to disinform you. Misinformation is not on purpose, not by design. It might be a mistake, it might be negligence, or whatever. Uh, I will start by basically (coughs) informing you that this is a free flow conversation between the three of us, uh, between the three of them. Uh, And then after that, uh, we are going to open questions from the audience, because these three panel These three panelists are very well informed. Uh, I've been reading their their work over the last two weeks uh, about this information, about the rise of extreme right, like what uh, Lydia has written. I will start from Lydia with uh, questions. What will happen to Twitter? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, (laughs) Thank you for giving me an easy question. (laughs) We actually will need a year to (laughs) discuss this instead of an hour. Um, I mean, who knows? I think everyone is really exercised, obviously, about um, the private takeover by Elon Musk of, of Twitter. I think a lot of people, when they're making predictions about what will happen to Twitter, are imposing their own desires on on the platform and on Elon and on, on the hopes of what he will do based on, on their interests. So he's got a lot of these, you know, far-right libertarian fanboys who are hoping that he's going to open it up to this, be this space of free speech absolutism,
1: Donald Trump,
2: bringing Donald Trump back, bringing others, like really looking to his takeover as a place where not only will it be a public square of information, but it will be this space for free speech absolutism um, on Twitter. There are other people you know, who are already logging off their accounts saying that you know, I'm going to get off now, it's going to be a disaster, when he gets on it's not going to be a space that I want to, to be involved in. I think there's two directions really it could go. One is the status quo, or some version of the status quo, where Twitter is kind of essentially the same imperfect shit show that it currently is, but also has some value. Um, or it really, if he does go down this... Uh, free speech absolutism uh, venue, it will honestly become a much more smaller, much more diminished, less mainstream platform going the way of, say, a parlor would. Um, But that's against his business interests and I think his political interests as well. So I think the people who are hoping for this space of free speech absolutism also don't realize that it's going to hurt his business in- interests with Tesla, for example, it's gonna drive off advertisers because nobody wants like you know, uh, this extremist fueled online space. It's just not gonna get you anywhere. And we've seen that with other platforms who've gone that way. Mm-hmm. They become much more limited, much more narrow. So I think at the moment we can hope for some sort of version of the status quo, um, but I think he's gonna very quickly realize how he's become now the face of this debate about content moderation mm-hmm. online, and that's not a very comfortable space to be, and ho- I think he's gonna quickly soon realize that.
1: Let's move to Tito and Projita.
2: Mm.
1: How will you react to this? Will you lock out from Twitter, or you will engage with the, the new Twitter under Elon Musk?
3: Um, well, I think, Personally, for me, I would not log out on Twitter because I have to be in that space. I feel like even though I personally, I don't actively post um, tweets on Twitter, but um, as uh, someone who works in the media sector and uh, runs a media organization, social media channels are uh, important channels to distribute information. So we will still continue to uh, be on on that platform, to be in that space. You
1: are being bullied online, repeatedly.
3: (laughs) I'm not being bullied online repeatedly, just (laughs) once. (laughs) Uh, Yeah.
1: I will give Tito a chance to respond to that. But before you answer, Tito, I know you have been taking photos of this Uput Writers Festival and put it on your Twitter. (laughs) Do you mind to take a selfie? and tweet it and then you answer it.
4: Sure, sure. I'll do
1: that. <laughs> take a look at his, his Twitter account. <laughs> All right. Tito is very selfies, good in doing so selfie. <laughs> Come on Lydia. Say hello to Elon Musk.
5: <laughs>
4: um. Now, this is embarrassing because I take too long drafting tweet, <laughs> my tweets, so it might take about an hour for me to actually publish it. But I think before I publish it, uh, before I tweet this, I think, uh, yeah, as you can see, I'm addicted to Twitter. I love Twitter, partly because it's, you know, it's a way for me to engage with people like Lydia, with, uh, with Prodita, with, you know, many of you here. Um, and it's, it's a fun space, but I think one, so I'm not going to log out, but I think what um, for me, you know, if you're talking about misinformation, disinformation, often the victims of misinformation and disinformation in many ways are the minorities. Yeah. Um, so I think that will be, for me at least, there will be a bigger project for me to be on Twitter to watch how, as you know, as Lydia mentioned before, you know, if there are people from Parlour and all these other places who are you know, coming back to Twitter and, um, if they attack minorities, which are already happening before Elon Musk anyway. So I think that will be um, something that I will have to, you know, I think that for me that's a project that I will have to take on to, to see how this latest move from um, Elon Musk and Twitter will affect the way minorities are being talked about and how misinformation affects them.
1: Will you look out?
2: Um, no, not yet, but I don't... I use Twitter in a very limited fashion. So I mean, I think we talk about Twitter as one space, right? I think it really depends on how you use it, who you're connected with, um, and how you engage. I think just in anything. It's a, it's a tool, it's a platform. So everyone's experiences are g- going to be different. Um, you know, some people engage in inane back and forth with people they don't even know or care about and get themselves all exercised. I personally use it to connect with informed and like-minded folks, such as yourself, Make announcements of where I'm going to be and where I'm speaking, um, and use it in a very limited, limited fashion. Others, maybe Tito, you know, use it, use it in a particular way where you use it to get more of your work out there. Um, so it, de- I think, it just very much depends on the way that you use it. And because I use it in a limited space, in a limited way, at this point, um, I don't feel the need to to get to get off it. And I don't really think, and I think people who are exercised about what's going to happen to the platform may not have already realized that so many of the things that they've That they're worried about already occur Like Tito said there is you know harassment already there is a plethora of disinformation and misinformation There are all of these negative things already happening with or without Elon Musk taking it over But at the same time it can be a positive space depending on how you use it
1: Okay Uh, another another subject there are increasingly regulation to restrict restrict, uh, the internet, criminal defamation articles are being drawn in many parts of the world. (coughs) Singapore, fake news law, for instance. Indonesia, ITE internet law. You can end up in prison for your tweet or your posting on Facebook or your WhatsApp uh, forwarding. If we do wrong with our posting, what should we do?
4: I think there's, um, if you're from Australia, you might know um, Peter Van Onselen, is a political editor of um, uh, Nine. And recently he tweeted something that was factually wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there's a 14 year old journalist by the name of Leonardo Puglisi, who's fun and amazing, um, and he pointed to Peter Van Onselen that you know, oh, Peter, you're a political reporter, you should know that this is factually wrong. What you tweeted was factually wrong. What was it? Um, he, he um, now I'm gonna get this wrong. <laughs> <And> <laughs> someone is gonna tweet it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Peter van Doanselen thought uh, Lydia Thorpe was the de- uh, deputy leader for the Greens in mm-hmm. Australia, but he was, she was the deputy uh, senate leader, uh, which is a very important, Um, distinction to make, especially if you're a political journalist. Um, And then Peter Van replied to Leonardo saying, you know, Peter, you're wrong. And he said, oh, who cares? And then he became this really, you know, like... um, um, Yeah, I think the way he replied was not very Twitter. Mm -hmm. I think, as a journalist... And I think, for me, that says something a lot about journalists in Australia, especially, where if you... (sighs) Journalists can be very defensive. And I love journalism. I'm a journalist. and, you are but teaching th- journalism. I'm teaching journalism. Um, and, but I think journalists can be quite defensive, and I think um, this is something that I wish many journalists can be more open about, that may, uh, they are on Twitter, you just have to be more open and engage with people who are saying, hey, you're wrong. Um, and I think that's why one of the reasons why I love Twitter is that you can do that. You can actually say to someone who's you know, the most famous j- journalist, one of the f- most famous journalists and say, hey, you're wrong about this. Um, but often I see the journalists say, you know, uh, you know, and become quite defensive. And I think, I'm hoping that this can change um, more. I think, because I think it's very important. I think my answer to your question is, it's very important for journalists to engage more with communities. But if you become defensive when someone is pointing out what you are wrong about, then that's not good for journalism in general and for misinformation in general, because that's just going to add to the feeling that journalists and not willing to engage with communities.
1: Rodita, what should Indonesian journalists do if they are wrong?
3: Well, I think they, firstly, if you post something, and um, you have to make sure that it's correct, especially if you're a journalist, you have to verify, you have to make sure that um, it's, it's factual. But sometimes people do make mistakes, right? And so if that happens, I think... First of all you have to kind of <laughs> try as as hard as it is, try to be open and pause for a little and just listen to actually what people are saying to you. Um, and then uh, be open to what, what they're trying to say. And if they if you if you reflect that indeed there is something wrong, mm-hmm. then you should own up to it. And if it may it, it would it would be Different courses. If do if you it's
1: delete, do you apologize? Do you make correction?
3: You ha- well, if it's I think if it's actually factually incorrect, you have to retract that information. Uh, apologize. If uh, if you just need to add some context, you have to explain more. Provide more context. Um so it depends on you know what actually the content of um the, the content that's being discussed and being debated about.
1: Will you still be able to be charged for disinformation or misinformation for hate speech for fake news in Indonesia? Myself? Yep, Indonesian journalist, Indonesian netizen.
3: Oh, yeah, with the with the internet, the internet law t- transaction law.
1: Uh, For your information, if you are, quote-unquote, proven to defame a religion in Indonesia on the internet, the maximum penalty is 10 years. 10 years. So it is very, very delicate, very, very dangerous, toxic situation. Uh, Lydia, what do you think about about this kind of disinformation misinformation or being making a mistake you know?
2: well i think there's there's kind of two different issues we're yeah. trying to tease out one yeah. is how do you correct the record officially yeah. when it's coming from official sources say like journalists in yeah. that situation i'm not so concerned because journalists have editorial practices um you know standards if you're a decent journalist you know that's that's inbuilt in the in the um yeah. in the profession so i think out of all of the list of things to be concerned about, that's pretty much on my bo- the bottom of my list. Mm-hmm. But to your other point about these types of laws and regulations uh-huh. that punish people for mm-hmm. either putting out false statements um, or uh, you know, defaming people or you know, insulting the government, they actually mm-hmm. are incredibly worrying to me mm-hmm. and um, are often vehicles for political control. And a lot of my work also looks at the rise of kind of the strong man model of leadership, the impacts of authoritarianism, the growth of authoritarianism and I think one of the things that we've come to realize since the early days of the 90s of the internet till now is that initially we thought that the you know the digital spaces were going to become these areas of more freedom, less restriction. It was this kind of tech utopia phase that we were entering in um, people would, when, you know They would think that the internet was this space of digital citizenship that would become a forum for people to um, oppose restrictions and authoritarian leaders. What we're actually seeing now is through these laws and through these regulations that authoritarian leaders are much better able to enact their restrictions and their control through le- legislation like that. The internet has actually made it easier for them. So when you say things about like a law saying defaming certain religion, on the face of it, it's good. Nobody wants people to defame a religion, right? It seems to be like a good idea. It's a way to maybe potentially combat hate speech and what that will lead to in the real world. But that can be used and twisted in so many different ways. I mean, I've seen that in the country of my birth in Egypt where people have used similar laws to repress the expression and the speech of various people, it becomes worse when the law is you can't defame the government, and and defaming the government or defaming authorities uh, or going against them is so vague that it can be interpreted in any such way, where people u- leaders use these laws, um, to the it, you know as a means of control rather than of um, you know moderating society or making society better.
1: In all these, 10, countries in Southeast Asia, ASEAN, all these 10 countries, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Myanmar, Vietnam, Indonesia, they all have criminal defamation articles. People go to prison mm-hmm. for defaming a religion, defaming an ethnic, ethnic group, defaming an island, defaming uh, a language, you can go to prison for defaming a language in Indonesia. Why all these Southeast Asian countries still do have criminal defamation article? How can we get rid of them?
3: <laughs> um, I think the answer is what, what Lydia has just explained that, of course, the political elite wants to retain their control and their grip <laughs> over the population. And so um they want to suppress dissent, right? And they would they we would had,
1: We had been independent for 7 decades. Indonesia sudah merdeka 70 tahun, masih begitu. Look look at Australia, look at the US. There is no criminal defamation article. But Indonesia 1945 only has 35 articles on criminal defamation, including against the government.
2: Well, in, Now in we have
1: more than 150.
2: In Australia, actually, the defamation laws are quite strong. I mean, Donald Trump actually commented on Australian defamation laws, saying, I wish I had those laws in the US. And you can see why he's saying that, because they're used oftentimes to suppress dissent, suppress criticism when criticism is needed. Um, and so it's not something I think that's uh, unique to the ASEAN context or even to the authoritarian context.
1: So Australia is worse than the US?
2: In terms of defamation laws, yes.
1: Not criminal defamation, though.
2: Not criminal defamation, yeah. yeah. But it's often used in a similar way.
4: I think, I think one of the challenges as well is that if we look at misinformation, disinformation, if we simplify it, then you have different stakeholders, right? you, you have different agents, you have um, regulators, you have social media companies. Mm-hmm. And then you have civil society. And I would probably put journalists and information workers here. Um, and if you look at some of the recent reports and research, we know that misinformation and disinformation, um, they're actually profitable and useful for the top two, for regulators, government, and social media companies. It's too expen- uh, it, at least it's too expensive for them to actually tackle the problem. So I think that is one of the problems, that misinformation is too profitable.
5: Mm well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what can people like you do? What can journalists do? What can ABC do? What can the Jakarta Post do, the conversation do, to overcome all of this disinformation, misinformation on social media platform?
4: I mean, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff happening in you know, fact-checking, in the fact-checking sphere. Um, especially in Indonesia, I have to say. They're amazing new organisations doing amazing journalism. Um, I want to do a shout-out to Project Multatuli. I don't know if anyone knows Project Mutatuli. They're doing amazing journalism in Indonesia. Um, um, and The Conversation as well, obviously, doing some amazing fact-checking. Um, and maybe you can talk about, you know, what you're doing for the coming, upcoming election, I think, because it's amazing. Um, but I think, one, I think I've already mentioned this. One of the things that I want to do more, uh, I want to see more is Well, one thing that I want to say about this is that we can't leave the problem of misinformation and disinformation to be solved by journalists alone, because um, there is a research from the US, I can't remember who published this, but there is a research in the US uh, that uh, looks at how fact-checking can actually add to the feeling of distrust, because what the fact-checkers do um, in our society, fact-checkers say there are uh, organisations publishing information that you can trust and organisations you cannot trust. Um, and I think for the median users of social, me- social media, that just adds to the confusion because they then say, well, who can I trust? And I think to solve this problem, uh, if you look at, again, the four things, you know, uh, social media companies, governments, <laughs> regulators, Um, and then you have civil society and journalists. I think journalists and civil society need to work together. And what I want to see more journalists do is work more with communities.
1: Define cooperation between journalists and society.
4: I think we are already seeing some of this in the US. For example, there's the Change the Terms Coalition. They've just published a report, I think, yesterday. Uh, You can read it in freepress.net. It's basically a coalition of media workers civil society people who are um, saying to Meta, to Twitter, to TikTok um, to um, basically become watchdogs. So I think misinformation, disinformation um, cannot be solved by just journalists playing the role of uh, a watchdog because it's just too big. And we were talking yesterday about this, right? It's not just about facts, it's about people's emotions. So I think that's where we need to move towards. Journalists to need to admit that you can't change people's minds by just throwing them more facts. You need to start dealing with the fact that facts have emotions embedded in people's yeah. you know, bodies and feelings, and we need to do something about that. I don't have the answers on how to do that, but I think working closer with communities, collaborate closer with communities, um, will create some of the solutions in, journal, uh, in journalism.
1: Rojita?
3: I think there's a lot of work being done by academics actually studying about um, the impact of digital technology on society, and not just on um, democracy, but also on uh, the environment, on the economy, and all that. So um, we need to learn more about that. And with collaboration between you know, journalists and civil society and academia, the journalists media organizations need to be able to tap into that research, learn about those research, and bring it out there to the public so that the public actually knows what's going on um, with uh, the state of misinformation and disinformation. For example, the public are logged into social media platforms. They see all these conversations, but probably they don't know that there's cyber troops, actually. um, Cyber troops, that's like, uh, buzzers, fake accounts, robots, influencers, being hired by different agents or political actors to um, manufacture opinion o- on social media. So when if people know that they, that exists, they would uh, be more cautious about what they see on social media. And so there's a lot of work in, uh, by researchers trying to understand um the the landscape what's happening in these platforms and also there are a lot of researchers also trying to find ways of helping people to become more resilient in uh, when they encounter misinformation and disinformation for example um a group called uh, i think it's the stanford history education group they're they're um Giving out a model of it, of how to um, what's what's that? How to notice misinformation and disinformation by uh, three things. It's like um, who's wh- who's behind the information. The information. If you encounter something, who's behind that information? What's the evidence? And what does other sources say about this information? So those just three. Three questions, and if you encounter some information and you have those three questions on your mind, then you can be, be more aware of whether that's misinformation or disinformation. And so there's a lot of researchers doing that kind of work, and I agree with Tito that uh, the collaboration between journalists and researchers and civil society is that you have to bring it out there, and we actually use those platforms as well to, to bring those information out there. Yeah.
1: Uh, the, the third point is violence. This information, misinformation, could lead to violence. Lydia, what are the worst scenario and what have happened in terms of either state violence or individual attack, like what happened to Nancy Pelosi's husband?
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Please.
2: Yeah, so that, I think that's part of the bigger discussion about Online harms translating into offline harms and the intersection between those things, and so violence um, is just a slice of that, but if we're talking in the ASEAN context, I think probably the worst case scenario is what we saw in Myanmar um, in terms of the the genocide with with the Rohingya I mean and the eth- sectarian violence in Myanmar i mean that was research has shown that that has been driven by disinformation put out again, to your point about you know who's behind it, by interested parties um, seeking to consolidate political control. And um, that situation in Myanmar, in my mind, is almost like the worst case example across the board of wh- what happened when disinformation flows from offline platforms and intersects with a societal and political context. On a personal level, you know, it is like things that we saw with the attack against, um, Nancy Pelosi's husband, but it can also be lesser harm, you know, quote unquote lesser harms, things like doxing, harassment, um, all of those things, and it's and that's when it enters into criminal territory. So um, I think that there's a, a, but it's a very fine line in a gray area from when it becomes something that's unpleasant or not like something that's not a societal good, good. versus going into criminal territory. And I think if we do try to do these distinctions, it might help us come up with better solutions for how to address it, because I do very much agree with the points raised earlier, that this is not something that can be fact checked away. We have to understand how the online space is used as a community space, how communities gather online, and most people Embrace that you know these conspiracy theories or things and make it part of their identity and make it part of their Community and so if you're at that level um, You're not going to fact check me away from giving up a part of my identity or a part of my community And I think the QAnon phenomenon is something that is really illustrative of of that fact Um, I it's very um, uncertain to know how much the people who embrace QAnon, actually believe in the conspiracy, or rather that this is just part of their community and their identity. So we have to tackle and look at it from that framework as well, not just about combating disinformation or f- addressing it with facts, but you know how, h- how are these things formed and formulated through that framework of community and identity, and what the online space has provided that.
1: Uh- I I met Lydia, two wonderful children two days ago. Uh, They are not having children yet. or I don't know whether they will. (coughs) But Lydia has a very interesting story. Lydia basically does not allow uh, her two children, Cassius and and Aya, Mm -hmm. to have laptops or to have Cell phone. Uh, she basically argue that it is healthier for our children not to have access to, uh, to a certain degree to the internet. Lydia, would you please tell the audience about why you do that?
2: Um, well, I think because a lot of uh, uh, our understanding of what this use of this technology does to developing brains um, is incomplete, and what we have seen is worrying. And so I think when children are at a particular stage of development, that it's not a very useful thing. They
1: are four and seven years old. No, seven and ten. Seven and ten. Yeah, so
2: they're still they're they're still young. I mean, I like, I am addicted to my phone, you know, and and I work like in this space and I on on all these things. I'll freely admit, like I'm completely addicted to my phone. I'm always on it working, you know, the posting on this. And so if this is what it's doing to my adult brain that's already been developed then I have a lot of concerns about what it can do for, for younger children. Now, it's not all you know, doom and gloom. I think the jury's still out, I think, uh, on the established research. Some research has shown that there can be some positive uh, outcomes of children's use of technology, but I think particularly um, social media, unsupervised, is generally unhealthy. And when they do use devices or technology, it's supervised. And then we have a conversation about what we're looking up on Google or what Google is. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to do is actually explain to them that this isn't like Siri is not some cool, magical uh, (laughs) computer persona, right? It's actually part of a company and the way that she's able to answer you back is because she gives you give it information and they have a program that takes that information that you give them that is able to answer, you know, do things to answer back to you. So I try to explain as much as I can that, you know, these are companies. They run on ads. They run on your information, on your data. They're looking to get things from you and you need to be comfortable about what you give to them. So um, trying, I think, and I think children have the capacity to understand this. So explaining to them exactly what these technologies are, what these companies are, what they're taking from you versus what you're gaining, um, and doing it in a supervised manner uh, is really important, because I'm not going to be able to shield them from use of technology or devices forever. But if I can give them that framework, that will be helpful. And I know parents with teenage children who have found great success talking to them, say, before they allow them to have a social media profile and say, "Look, look, this is the... Situation with Instagram, you know, these are some of the harmful things that we've seen be aware of this that having an open conversation with them and your children and your teenagers about what these platforms are and they've said actually my teenagers use it less Now that they know what's actually really behind it. So having these honest conversations. I think is is useful
1: Questions from the floor Yes, please Please uh, identify yourself
4: Hi, um, my name is Verdi. Um, I'm Indonesian, by the way. I'd like to ask you, um, so far we've been discussing about um, misinformation and uh, disinformation among the people. All right. What about disinformation and misinformation from the government? Uh, there is one thing that I, I feel kind of discon- di- uncomfortable with that, because. Uh, we get, we, get, we get punished for it, but what about the government giving this, inf- this information?
1: Example? Um, for example, Iraq war, where, where mm-hmm. millions of people have been killed and displaced. And so far, nobody had, nobody's owning up to the... Thank you. Do you want to answer that?
4: Maybe I'll and this is to also answer your question about violence. Um, you know, we're talking about misinformation and disinformation in Indonesia. If you look at the election in 2019, am
1: I right? What should we do on President George W. Bush? Sorry? What should we do for President George W. Bush on the Iraq war? Or Colin Powell, who misled the UN?
4: Yeah, well, I I mean, I don't know much about that case, unfortunately. But I think if we look at what happened in the Indonesian election in 2019, a lot of the disinformation and misinformation were about ethnic and religious tensions, yeah. including a lot of attacks uh, against Chinese <laughs> yeah. Indonesians, Chinese minorities. And I think this is probably not really directly <laughs> answering your question, but at that time, the government didn't do anything about well, they Well, eventually they did something about it, which is they uh, blocked um, video and um, photos from WhatsApp. Um, but again, it goes back to this thing where it was profitable. It was useful for this misinformation to be spread around during election times for some of the candidates. So, so I think this is a big uh, question about, yeah. and we're coming up to the election in Indonesia coming up. I think there's going to be a big question about, okay, what do we do to make sure that the Indonesian government can be held accountable?
2: So maybe with the Iraq War I might be able to address that a bit because I was actually working in government at the time. I was first starting my government career during the Iraq War and when it was occurring. And that's when I was working with the Defense Department. I think the situation with the Iraq War is a bit more complicated in terms of um, the deliberate putting out of disinformation to justify the war. So, but at the same time I think it created a precedent for worse things that we're seeing now. So if I can explain it in this way, I, there was a contestation about the, le, the intelligence and how to use it, and that was all happening both within government, and it was being played out outside. And if we go back to the role of journalists, right? the role of journalists during the Iraq War in, in spreading a particular uh, information and narrative justifying it, they were actually part of the problem as well, too. So journalists are not always part of the solution. There was a very broad momentum at the time that I think people forget because it's so long ago, especially after the 9-11 attacks, where this was all caught up in that. There was a need to kind of do something. And so it was. I I wouldn't say it was a deliberate uh, false narrative that was planted there by political actors, but it was an argument that was made that was done with uh, selected information and selected intelligence. And more importantly, opposition to it was stifled. Now if you compare the Iraq war, say, with the big lie in the United States that Donald Trump is deliberately putting around the elections, a bit different, right? That is a specific like, narrative of disinformation that's clearly disproven that he's putting out there for political gain. But having said that, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump away. right? You can see the precedent of this information environment and where it can lead to. So I just want to inject that little bit of complexity around what's happened with the Iraq war, but also at the same time acknowledge that it's a part of a continuum around disinformation for political uh, gain.
1: Yes, please. The gentleman in the green shirt, floral shirt.
5: (coughs) Thanks, thanks guys. I wonder what the panel thinks about the topic with regard to the print press and also television. Um, in television, of course, you just mentioned Trump and Fox News relationship. In the UK, you've got the right-wing press uh, still defending Brexit. In Australia, you've got the Australian acting as a, a Liberal Party uh, pamphlet. So uh, just curious as to whether you feel it's any worse or better in the, in the print press or TV, because. I've got the agent stage now where it's hard to believe anything that you, you read or see in any form of media.
1: Would like to answer that question?
3: I think, uh, you know, just like what, what I, I said before about, you know, when, when, you, when you receive information, right? you have to um, question who's behind that information so in terms of and and that goes across the board like um information on the internet information on the television information on print media uh in terms of like broadcast television who actually owns um the company right who actually owns the print media in indonesia a lot of um uh, the media companies are owned by uh businessmen who are close to political um actors so uh when you see content from there, you would find, oh, that's why they, they're um, reporting about this issue, but probably not reporting about that issue. So we, we need to be much more informed about, you know, but much more critical about who's actually behind that, um, the owner of, of whatever platform um, that you consume information from.
1: How is about implementing the firewall between boardroom and newsroom?
3: I, th- I think in Indonesia um there has been some i guess concerns right from the newsroom especially uh when you have like the owner of the company calling into the newsroom and say you have to uh, publish this and publish that and and if it depends on the journalists like if they say uh, if they say, no, I'm not going to listen to you, they can lose their jobs, uh, right? Really? Yeah. In, some, in Australia? Some, some okay. media companies in Australia. Do Indonesia. they fire mm-hmm.
1: journalists who refuse the owner's request? <laughs> <laughs> there, the, there is yeah. Drew Andrew Ambrose over there, Al Jazeera. Will an Al Jazeera journalist being fired if the Emir of Qatar <laughs> says something?
4: No comment. No comment. <laughs> Yeah, that's my answer too. (laughs) But I think if I can add just a little bit, um, you know, I think the majority of people here are not journalists. If I can say something, um, I think I hear a lot, And in Australia, I feel like whenever I introduce myself as a journalist at a party or whatever, people say, oh, yeah, ha, 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 fake news, which annoys me very (laughs) deeply. Um, <laughs> because I think people just don't understand how hard it is to be a journalist these days. And, yeah. you know, go say hi to Drew and to Jewel here, um, and, you know, just, just you know, be nice to them. Be nice to journalists. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think please. Th- Oh, sorry. Sorry, yeah, if I could
2: just add very quickly yeah. to that. I mean, I think that that's an incredibly important point. You know, we, we're talking about all this responsibility of journalism. when they're inc- That's a field that's incredibly under attack at the moment. Yeah. I mean, we have to keep that in mind. But to the point about television, I think that the rise of infotainment is incredibly troubling. So the sep- there's no longer this separation of entertainment and information. And we've seen that with the rise of cable news, not just Fox News and the press, but in general. Like if we talk about the Donald Trump's rise, for example, to take a very quick example, I'll fish quickly on this. You know, people say, well, it was Fox News, right, who led to his rise. Actually, take a look at the um, role of CNN and the executive, uh, executive there and the board there. The director of CNN at the time was actually the executive producer of The Apprentice for many years.
6: Oh.
2: Right? And he was The apprentice, I think more than anything, brought Donald Trump's uh, to, the, to the nation's attention. And it showed him as like an authoritative figure, making decisions, all that. It was just a completely whitewashed his persona. Whereas if you grew up and worked in New York, Right, like I did a certain. You knew exactly who Donald Trump was. He was a bridge and tunnel guy, who was like not respected at all. And then this sanitization of him and this persona of him presented both in The Apprentice and then later in CNN and then embraced by Fox News is one of those things I think that shows the blurring of the line between inter- entertainment and information. That's part of an underlying dynamic that can be difficult to address but, but, but and underneath all that.
1: there are other news organizations in, in, in New York. There are New York Times, there are you know, okay. uh, CNBC News that are critical toward Donald Trump.
2: They're critical of him, but think about how good he has been for them. I mean, Donald Trump revived journalism. He led to massive subscriptions in the New York Times. Yes. MSNBC became a huge platform because of him. So it's not just about being critical of him and fact-checking him or, or people like him, it's also what's the underlying economic logic behind all of this stuff. They're amplifying him to, the, to also to their benefit. You can't deny May that. Can
1: someone argue against Lydia? <laughs> <laughs> no. Terasi <laughs> Jabat, <laughs> New York Times journalist. Would you please argue against Lydia? <laughs> please.
6: Uh, I just wanted to comment that what I'm hearing is that we have a, uh, a real poverty of media literacy and that maybe, you know, we're teaching our children maths and English, maybe (laughs) what we actually need to teach our children is media literacy. Would you comment on that?
5: Yes. Maybe the journalism.
4: Well, I I do teach journalism, so I suppose I can add to this. I think with my students, what I see is there's a lot of anxiety about technology. and i think yes i agree that we need to teach young people media literacy but also we need to face the fact and lydia you talked about you know this this thing about yeah you're not letting your um, children have laptops or engage too much with digital screens i think we also need to somehow help them feel a little bit more safe in in the world today because i think with a lot of my students the level of anxiety that they have as undergraduate students are not the level that I had as an undergraduate student. I think a part of this is because they don't know who to trust. Um, they feel like the world is you know, being destroyed by all these big companies. They don't know how what to do. I think it's not just about media literacy, it's also about empowering them, uh, helping them to, to, to uh, yeah, to engage with this world um, of misinformation and disinformation and, and accepting that, yes, they have a lot of anxiety and we need to do something as, as adults in the room.
5: Listen. Yeah, it's so nice to have a word for disinformation. I would just call it lying on purpose. Uh, I want to come back to this Twitter issue, which happened this week, basically, the official takeover. And I think it's very naive to, as, as Elon Musk saying, we want to have the, the open, the chance for totally open opinion. Because he's not naive at all. But, and I wonder whether he can see the danger by doing that. Hitler came to power because he used at that time the radio as a medium, as a political medium. And now we have the situation that we have the social media giving anybody the possibility to spread information, whatever they want to say. Or lying. And who is responsible for that? Mm. We have all your, and it's basically coming down to a problem of the capitalism. We have now a press which is in the right-wing press dominated by, by Murdoch. And they are so strong that we have the political situation we are in. And so what can, I really don't know what we can do with that because we all want to have democracy. We want to all free speech. But if it's abuse like Trump is doing, he's able to constantly repeat this lie of stolen election. Why is it not possible by the legislative to stop this?
2: Well, I I think these legislative um, issues, you know, legislative approaches or regulation approaches, go go exactly to that problem of what when you start to regulate speech in that way, you have all of these unintended consequences, right? Um, I would highly recommend this new uh, this article that just came out called "Welcome to Hell, Elon," and it talks about (laughs) the challenges that he's going to face taking over Twitter, and now putting himself out there as the face of content moderation. So I think when we, I mean, I'm a big fan of regulation and and legislation around the technology industry, but not so much when it comes to content moderation moderation and speech, more again to what you're referring to around issues of capitalism and competition. Because one of the unintended consequences of over-regulation of these platforms is that it actually makes it much more difficult to have competition in this space. You can only be a a huge company like a Facebook, like Twitter, or Meta, sorry, in order to have the resources to fulfill all of these regulatory obligations that are now put upon you. And so what it does, paradoxically, is actually reinforce the tech oligarchy that we have at the moment. So there are all these unintended consequences, I think, to regulation and legislation, even though they are necessary in certain aspects. But I'm much more interested in, say, the antitrust avenue of regulation for the technology industry, rather than legislation around content moderation. You have recent legislation, say, in Texas now, around content moderation. It's incredibly troublesome, because it gets into these issues around free speech, and then how these are then going to be used to control speech, and then all of these things, and has all these unintended consequences. So, if we take a look at reg- regulation in terms of and the, the logics of capitalism, and the logics of surveillance, and the logics of mass media, and um, and social media, rather than just content, we focus so much on content that we're not focusing enough on all of these bigger
6: things. Right? Elliot, uh, hi, Mohammed, yeah, go yeah, ahead, please. I'll, so you can see me. I'll argue with Lydia. Mm -hmm. Um, The Iraq war was based on a purposeful lie that was perpetrated by people with political interests doing so and co-opting so-called journalists like Fareed Zakaria. That's number one. Mm. Um, Number two, I worked at CNN for a long time. Nobody ever told me what to put on the air from up top. What CNN did with Donald Trump was tragic, was a mistake, but it was because he was great television. And, they, and that's your job as a TV news producer is to put on great television. Mm. He was great television, and he was a big joke. This guy is never going to be president. Are you kidding me? I, I was a city planner in New York in the 80s. What he did to the Bond with Teller building, the guy was a joke. The guy was a clown. And that he put this over on the American people is tragic and is a black stain on the American people, mm. and I'm one of them. But uh, I didn't vote for him, of course, but yes. So that's, <laughs> but what I actually wanted to say is that in defense of the media, I hear people like this gentleman in the green shirt who made some very good points, but then topped it off with, you can't trust the media. People, thinking people, tend to say stuff like that. There was somebody who was calling himself a journalist yesterday who said, yeah, and by the way, you can't trust anything you read you know, or you see on TV. That's wrong, as you as you're saying, sir. You have to understand who the source is. You have to disintermediate between who's telling the truth and who's not. And as journalists, it's our duty when people say, you can't trust the media. No, you can't trust certain media, and these are some good media that you can trust. Because without the media, without them telling your story, you've got nobody in the room where things are happening. You've got nobody looking out for you. Because everybody else has got an interest. The media is the closest thing you have to a disinterested observer. What do you think? Here's the (laughs) question.
1: Your turn, Lydia.
6: So um,
2: I I take your point about the Iraq war. Um, But having had maybe a front row seat to what was going on Maybe I'm a bit more um, inclined to kind of flesh out the complications because I saw it kind of unfolding from, from the front lines, so to speak. Um, in, but in terms of your point about Donald Trump being good television, that's exactly my point. You know, I'm not saying that someone from the boardroom, from on high, told CNN reporters what to write or what to cover. But that's exactly the point. It w- all journalists were cons- cared about was that he was good television, that it was infotainment, right? Without any other consideration of what that potentially could lead to. Um, and so on there, we're actually in agreement.
1: The last questions, please.
0: <clears throat> uh, I'd like to play devil's advocate for a minute. Lydia, I'm with you. Uh, <clears throat> content moderation from governments really worry me. Yeah? And there are unintended consequences. But let's, let's just turn it around for a minute. I'm going to pretend I'm the Information Minister of Singapore. Yeah? there is broad agreement that uh, there are issues of information and disinformation. The problem isn't responsible journalists. Media companies are ideologically biased, or they follow the business interests of an owner. And in our part of the world, the call from the owner's office to the newsroom is a reality. Yeah? So you've got media organizations. There are some that can be trusted, but a lot that can't be trusted. You've got independent actors not associated with, uh, with media organizations who are putting up all kinds of information, disinformation, misinformation on Twitter and all, all these platforms. The platforms refuse to take any responsibility for this very often. They don't have good content moderation. They say, we're just a platform. We don't take responsibility for the content. Civil society, what we're seeing is an increase in majoritarianism in every country of the world, right? so. Can civil society really be trusted to protect minorities? So we've got all these problems. We agree that these problems exist, but no one's coming up with a solution. And I'm the Information Minister of of Singapore, and I say, let's have strong regulation where somebody putting up misinformation will go to jail. Why not?
1: I disagree with that.
0: No, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I want to hear why not.
6: <coughs> oh, <laughs> um,
1: uh, uh, Time is up, two more minutes. All right, yes. I'll just
4: be very quick. Um, I, think, I think what I want to say is, it, I think it's Walter Benjamin who says, don't start with the good old things, but start with the bad new things. And I think what we need to do more is and I'm not saying these are bad things, but, you know, I mentioned Project Mutatuli before, and in Indonesia, there's Condé.co, for example. In Australia, we have Indigenous Acts. There are all these small operations that are doing amazing things. And I think this is related to what you said before about, you know, great television. In journalism, we, often we fall in love with journalism too much, and we say, oh, my God, that's good TV, without actually thinking about what does that mean to actually publish that information. Um, so, sorry, this is not really engaging with your question that much, but I think... I think what we need to do more is support those small organizations new ideas. journalists need to be more open to ideas um so yeah i think I, I have a lot to say about this, but I think i want to yeah give up. Rita,
1: send them to prison
3: no, of course not <laughs> <laughs> um I think that would be uh, trying to put uh, trying to take a shortcut in a wicked problem right like you would you would just you know um. Come up with a regulation, come up with a legislation and you think that you solve a problem, but it actually doesn't solve a problem and actually adds a problem. So um, I don't agree with you know putting a repressive legislation like that, but you know really just coming together and trying to find that solution, which is very, very difficult. and I think a lot of people are trying to figure things out at the moment, and there is no real answer yet uh, that we have come we've arrived to that's my answer.
2: So very quickly, I think you raised some really good points. I especially really like your point about majoritarian countries and using civil society as as a bulwark and the problems with that. I would say when it comes to regulation, we still have not figured out how to identify these companies and therefore have not been able to regulate them properly. Are they social networking? Are they media platforms? Are they advertising companies? They present themselves as social networking connecting companies when they're not. They're data collection ad companies. And so to try to understand exactly what they are, label them as such, then we can begin to regulate them accordingly. Not that we shouldn't regulate them, but regulate them in the exact way based on what they are. So many people think that they're just these communication platforms, networking platforms. They're not. They're data collection advertising platforms at the end of the day and we should regulate them as such.
1: Thank you so much, Lydia. That is the end of the statement. So remember, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, WhatsApp, they are advertisement companies. (laughs) Again, thank you so much.
4: Thank you, everyone.